Welcome to It's Your Money, a practical guide for managing the financial resources God has provided. Your host is Christian attorney and financial counselor, G. Edward Reed. Hello and welcome to session number two in the It's Your Money uh, series. We're talking about the biblical principles of personal money management. If you happen to have the workbook or the textbook that we use in this, you would be on page five in the workbook today or chapter two in the book, and we're talking about eternal life in the balance. So what we're going to actually do is to uh, look at some biblical principles this time. And uh, in the first several of these, we're talking about laying a foundation for a spiritual perspective in our lives. Then, of course, in the middle of the series, we'll talk about getting out of debt, buying your house, uh, training your children to learn to manage money properly, and things like that. We'll also talk later about inheritance and uh, estate planning and uh, uh, so on. But today, we're going to talk about uh, the, the perspective that God sees. And uh, the first text we'll look at is Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. The Bible says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Uh, You know, from a worldly perspective, uh, people think of success as fame and accumulation of things. For example, how would you know if someone was successful in this life? Well, people op- often say, well, the kind of car they drive, the clothes they wear, the house they live in, where they go on vacation, who their friends are, all those kind of things. But from God's perspective, we're really looking at the success of the kingdom. We want to be happy and have the things that we need for our uh, needs and uh, uh, so on, but we're really thinking in terms of the kingdom because we have in mind, not just this life, but the eternal perspective. Now, we read in the last session from uh, Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, and verse 24 is identical to Luke 16, 13. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pause just a moment and see what word actually pops in your mind. It says, no servant can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. Now get ready for this word now. You cannot serve God and mammon probably popped into your head because many of us memorized that from the King James Version of the Bible. And when I read that, I thought, well, this doesn't say anything bad to me because I'm not serving mammon. I don't even know who mammon is. But when you look at some of the new translations of the Bible, that word there, mammon, is translated wealth or riches or money. And uh, even the King James Version, by the way, in its margin references, talks of it that way. Now, one of the fascinating things about this concept is the Bible does not say that it's difficult to serve God in money. What it says is that it's impossible to do it. It just can't be done. So we have to understand that either we're going to be like the rich young ruler and go for the things of this world, or we're going to live comfortably with God's blessing and plan on eternity. So those are the points. Now, the third section here on this page is the uncertainty of riches. Uh, Paul uh, mentioned in his letter to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. And this is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and starting with verse 6 and 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. So having food and clothing with these, we should be content. 
But the interesting part in verse 9, it points out, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts, like get-rich-quick schemes. We'll actually talk about get-rich-quick schemes, how to identify them, how not to lose money. Do you know that many Christians have lost millions of dollars with these get-rich-quick schemes? And I'm going to show you how to identify them and how to be out from them. There are four principles we'll talk about when we get to that section. Now, then he says something interesting. These will drown men in destruction and perdition. And then this interesting statement that we're all familiar with, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith even in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it concludes, don't trust in uncertain riches. Now, if you have your... uh, uh, textbook or the workbook open, I'm going to ask you to close it now because I want to give you a little quiz just from your own thoughts. So you think about this. The Bible gives many examples, and one is in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, where it says, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the same things that they lusted after. So uh, the, uh, this is going to be kind of fun. I hope you enjoy doing it. I'm typically not a child's uh, speaker or, or uh, have children's stories, but I I do love kids, and I have two grown children, but I want to tell you that when you go to children's groups, they're always wanting to answer and raise their hand and so on, so you pretend like you're in a children's group this morning, or whenever you have the opportunity to listen to the tape, and I'd, what I'd like for you to do is think in the Bible of anyone that you might think of in the uh, Old Testament who lost their life because of their attitude toward money and possessions. Now, uh, don't cheat and think about New Testament ones, because those are real easy to think of. But we're going to actually look at some, and uh, then we would go to the New Testament. So let's open our books back up now, and we're going to start, actually, with uh, looking at some of these stories from the Bible. And uh, the very first one that we're going to look at is the story of Lot's wife. Now, when the Bible talks about remember Lot's wife, those are actually the words of Jesus, and they're in Luke 17, 32. So if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, as I do, these words are going to be in red in your Bible. But how do you remember Lot's wife? Well, it's not just an abstract recollection here. An abstract recollection would be, oh, yeah, I remember that lady. Didn't she turn into a pillar of salt or something? Well, that's, that's just remembering in an abstract way. But when you remember Lot's wife, I'm going to tell you the punchline to this story right up front here. You remember that no person or anything is worth trading for eternal life. For example, when you remember in the biblical sense, God, the Bible says, remembered Hannah. And when he did, she had a baby boy that she named Samuel. So things happen when you remember. When you wake up on Sabbath morning, you don't just say, oh, yeah, Sabbath, isn't it? When you wake up, you remember this is a day to keep holy, a a day to enjoy fellowship with other Christians, to spend time with God, to be outdoors in nature, and so on. So when you remember Lot's wife, you remember that no person or anything is worth trading for eternal life. So we're going to look at the story. 
And uh, if you look at it, you might just want to take your Bible and follow along here because it's quite a fascinating story. I've enjoyed it going through it because of the uh, real uh, vivid way the Bible tells this story. But this story of Lot actually begins in the 12th chapter of Genesis when God came to Abram and said, get up and get out of your country to a, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And uh, this call of Abraham is pretty fascinating because he says... I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. And then here's the amazing thing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God has put us here to be a blessing to others. Well, when uh, Lot, Abram's nephew, heard that he was going on this journey, he asked if he could come along and be a part of it. And, of course, what any Christian would tell someone who wanted to join them in their spiritual journey, he said, sure, come right along. Uh, you might have to wonder sometimes how he talked his wife into going, because when he told her about it, she probably said, well, where is he going? And uh, Lot had to say, well, he's not real sure. He says God will tell him on the way. But anyway, they went along, and God is true to his word. One of the things you learn about God is that he's big enough and powerful enough to do whatever he says he can do. And he said he was going to bless Abram. And if you look in the 13th chapter in verse 2, it says Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And then verse 5 says, Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. And these people were so wealthy that uh, they actually could not live close together because they measured their wealth in their livestock and so on. And apparently the shepherds were arguing about grazing rights and watering and so on. So one evening Abram called Lot in and he says, uh, it's not good for brethren to argue. And that's the lesson, of course, that we can learn even today. It's not good to argue. But what actually happened is he said, we're going to have to divide uh, the territory, and you go one way and I'll go the other way. And the interesting way he puts it, if you go this way, then I'll surely go the other way. If you go that way, I'll go the other way. At any rate, one of the strangest and saddest verses in the Bible is uh, recorded there in uh, chapter 13, verse 12. It's pretty interesting because Lot had been looking around, apparently, and he knew about this pretty valley with the river running through it. And he said, I found this place I'd like to go over there. And then here comes this sad text. It says, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now, it's pretty interesting that a lot of people today are generally aware that from a biblical perspective, if it's possible, and we don't live in an ideal world, I understand that, but if it's possible, you're better off living in a rural setting. There's no question about that. You don't go to the country to hide now. I want you to understand that. Uh, I can just tell you that with the satellite technology that we have today, scientists are actually able to pinpoint where the grizzly bears are hibernating in Yellowstone Park. Now, having said that, where are you going to hide? You don't go to the country to hide. You go there to be away from the noise and the pollution and the crime and the violence and the evil influence of the city. And anybody who's ever lived in a city knows those things exist there. So you want to raise your family and maybe even teach them gardening or to be away from all those evil influences. But this text says he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now, in chapter 14, we find that uh, he's actually living in Sodom. This is pretty interesting because four Elamite kings came warring into this valley, and they actually subdued five of these little city-state kings, and they destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and uh, actually ransacked them and took all the people and all the stuff. Now, most people haven't really thought too much about this, but you can name almost any two cities that you know, and if you were able to take all the stuff of value from the banks and from Walmart, you know, any place that you saw anything, Lowe's, wherever it was, you just took all the stuff, you'd be wealthy. I mean, you'd be a billionaire. Any city's got just billions of stuff there, and uh, they hauled all this off, and they took uh, Lot and his family and other able-bodied people to be uh, slaves for them. Some guy escaped and ran into Abram's tent area where he was uh, set up and said, your nephew Lot has been taken captive. Now, what could Abraham have said right then? Well, we all have different expressions. I remember one saying he made his bed, let him sleep in it. I mean, he chose to live down there. What is that to me? But he's called the father of the faithful, and by this time he was so wealthy that he had his own army. And you can read about it in Genesis 14, verse 14. When Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and he pursued them as far as Dan. Now you understand that he took some of his friends with him, but they had divided into groups of three, and uh, actually into three groups, and uh, attacked at night. And uh, they were able to rescue the hostages and get all the stuff. Now, here comes the fun part. There's probably not a person alive in the United States who has never dreamed of winning the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes or some big lottery, even though as Christians we don't get involved in gambling. But just wouldn't it be great if you could get a million dollars or maybe the $10 million? By the way, this doesn't work as great as you think. One of my classmates, actually, in ministry when I was in college, after about five years out of college, he actually won the Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes, the $10 million. And he did uh, uh, something that is hard not to do, but he did a bunch of rash things. Uh, First of all, he quit his job as a minister. He bought himself a second house in Florida. He started buying extra cars. And before long, he divorced his wife and his whole life changed. And uh, he would have been much better off without the money. But nonetheless, something fascinating happened. In this case, when Abram is coming back with all the stuff and the people, the king of Sodom, who had hidden himself in a slime pit apparently, uh, he came out to meet him and he said to Abram, we're so thrilled that uh, you have rescued the people and brought all this stuff back. Tell you what, we're going to give you the stuff and you just let us go back and start over again. Now here's his chance. But do you know what Abram did? This is really, really a fascinating story to me because he was able to say, thanks, but no thanks, I don't need the money. Wouldn't you like to be able to be in a position to tell somebody that? Well, it's fascinating that what he actually did was he tithed it. In the 14th chapter of Genesis and verse 20, it says he gave a tenth or a tithe to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. So he says, I'm not going to keep it. I don't need the money. I love this story because I don't think Sarah was present when he said, we don't need the money. And uh, I don't think she was selfish. I think she was just a realist and was interested in security because she could have said, what do you mean we don't need the money? We're living in a tent after all. But you know, the Bible says over in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham was looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. So he had his eye on the line and not just the dot. 
And the interesting part about all of this, he was living for eternity. And the Bible says that he lived in a tent. He chose to do that because he wanted to show his family and those who lived about him that this earth was not his home, that he was a pilgrim and a stranger here, which is an interesting thing. And he gave the money back to the people. Now, strange things happen. And I'm going to ask you, why don't we ever learn? Guess what Lot did? He moved right back into Sodom. And this is an incredible thing. God miraculously saved his life and then rescued him from a life of slavery. And he moved right back into the city. Now, why did Jesus say, remember Lot's wife then? We're not going to be able to spend as much time on all of these stories, but I do want to tell you something interesting. And that is a fascinating story is that one day Abraham was sitting in the door of his tent and he saw two people going by. Actually, three were out there and he could have just thrown up his hand and waved at them, but he didn't. He invited them in and said, oh, I'm sure your feet must be killing you. Let me wash your feet and I'll give you a morsel of food. And uh, in the course of the conversation, you understand now, looking back on it, that it was actually God and two angels. But Abram didn't know that when he was first friendly and hospitable to them. And so how did he know it was God? He knew because in the small talk they were doing before lunch, God said to uh, him, tell me about your family. Well, he said, uh, I've been told by God that I'm going to be the father of a great nation and my kids are going to be like the sand of the sea and the stars of heaven. And God, who he didn't recognize at that moment, said, oh, really, tell me about the size of your family now. He says, well, it's just me and the wife, and we're getting up in years, but God has promised. And God said then, by this time next year, you will have a baby boy. And an interesting part was that Sarah was not even present in the room, and she didn't make an audible sound. But that happened. Uh, God said, why did Sarah laugh? And God knew, or Abram knew, that God was the one there with him. So they changed their meal plans and ended up having quite a feast, as you remember. But when they rose up to leave, this is Genesis 18, verse 16. God uh, uh, started off with the angels. And then he said to the angels, you know, I shouldn't hide this from Abraham, the thing that we're planning to do. So you go ahead to the two angels and I'll go back and talk with him. And then he told them that they had heard in heaven that things were really bad on the earth. And if they were really that bad, that he would be destroying Sodom. Of course, Abraham immediately thought of Lot. And he says, well, you wouldn't destroy good guys with bad guys, would you? You've read that story many times yourself, probably. And he says, would not the God of all the earth do right? And so on. At any rate, he said, what if there were 50 good guys down there? Because he thought, surely by this time, Lot had, you know, a group of people studying the Bible with him or something. And his kids were grown and had families of their own. But at any rate, uh, God said, for 50 people, I wouldn't do it. And then Abram, of course, began bargaining with God. And uh, he went down to uh, 45, and God said, for their sake, I wouldn't do it. And then 40, for their sake, I wouldn't do it. And Abram became bolder and said, what if they were only 30? What if they were 20? What if they were 10? And uh, I want you to remember this because it's very important. And that is that God did not stop granting mercy until Abraham stopped asking. This is an incredible thing. He could have saved that city for one person, but he stopped at 10. Well, meanwhile, you can see in chapter 19, the angels came to Sodom. And they didn't look like angels. Everyone has their picture of what their angel looks like. They didn't look like angels. They look probably like traveling salespeople. 
And they uh, appeared to just get inside the city walls and to start rolling out their bedrolls. But Lot went up to them and said, no, 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 you're not going to stay here like this. Uh, you don't sleep in the street. I've got a place you can come. And they said, oh, no, no, we do this all the time. But Lot urged them, and he went to their house, or the angels went to his house, and uh, in the course of the evening, he fed them a meal, and they were sitting around visiting before going to bed or preparing for bed the second time. And uh, then the Bible says there was a knock at the door. And it wasn't just a knock because the Bible said the men of the city, both young and old, surrounded his house and started beating on the house and send those men out to us that we may sodomize them. Well, you understand, you remember the story, how he smote them with blindness and so on, and then the angels pulled him back inside. The angels smote them with blindness on the outside and said to Lot, we are not traveling salespeople. We didn't come here selling Fuller Brush or Malaluka or anything like that. What we're here for is that God has sent us to check out the city, and we've seen enough, so tonight will be the last night on earth for Sodom. Then he said, go out to your family. And this is an interesting verse. It's chapter 12, and excuse me, chapter 19, verse 12. The angel said, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have, take them out of this place, because the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Well, anyway, they went out, and you understand that when they went to the homes of the young people, they laughed at him. And even Lot himself stayed all night arguing with the angels as to why he shouldn't leave. Because we read in verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged him to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment. Well, you remember that the angels brought them out of the city. But when they got out, God himself met them. And it was God's voice that said, Don't look back. But Lot argued with God, saying, There's a little city. Let me go over there. At any rate, while he was arguing with God, his wife looked back and became a pillar of salt forever. And it's an amazing thing to understand that story. Why did she look back? Her heart was still back there. Her kids were still back there. Her stuff was back there. And we need to understand that no person or anything is worth trading for eternal life. Well, we're going to look at a couple of other stories real quickly. One of them is the story of Achan. And you find that in the uh, Joshua chapter 7. You remember that when the Israelite people came across the Jordan River, God had promised them this whole country, and yet the first thing they encountered was a walled city. And they were shepherds. I mean, how are they going to get in a walled city? Well, God had a plan. He told Joshua, you march around it once a day for seven days and seven times on the seventh day, and then seven priests will blow seven trumpets and the walls will come down. And they did. But they, he said, you're going to see gold and silver and all those things. You bring them back to start the temple economy, but don't keep any of it for yourself. There were about a million Israelites, apparently, but only one kept some money. And he hid some gold and silver in a garment in his, uh, off, in his tent. And then you remember 36 Israelites were killed in the Battle of Ai shortly following that. Well, to make a long story short, when Achan was found out, only one man in a million Let me just ask you, do you think that someone who's unfaithful in your church can cause problems for the whole church? Apparently that happens. So what we're going to look at here is that God said this man should be destroyed. He was stoned to death along with all of his family, and then they were, uh, all their stuff piled on them, and they were burned up. We'll look at the third one on page six, and that's the selfish intern. Now, it's pretty interesting. We're talking about Gehazi here when Naaman, who had the leprosy, came to Elisha the prophet, 
uh, he went and dipped in the Jordan River seven times, as you remember. And when he was healed, he wanted to give all this money and uh, clothes and so on to the prophet. But Elisha said, no, we don't need the money. God didn't do that for you on that basis. So you remember how Gehazi went and uh, told a lie that some young poor people had come and they needed help. And of course, Naaman was very happy to give it to him. You understand the bottom line. And that is that in, in essence, he got the uh, leprosy. Now, we've already talked about the rich young rulers here. We're going to look at one other one quickly, and that's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, the fact is, when you study this in Acts chapters 4 and 5, you can also read about it in the book Acts of the Apostles, page 75 and 76. These people made a commitment to do something for God, but selfishness got the best of them, and they conspired together to uh, keep back part of the money. Now, I want you to understand that the tithe is a vowed offering also. And as Christians, we tell uh, God that we're going to be faithful. And sometimes we have a tendency to want to keep part of it back. And we don't want to, to repeat that same situation in our lives. We've talked about uh, Abraham already. I want to tell you just briefly about uh, Moses. The Bible says in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, that uh, he looking at what he could be on this earth by faith he became when he became of age he refused to be called the son of pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of god than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of christ greater riches than the treasures of egypt for he looked for the reward the point is he had his eye on eternity and not just this life now, I'm going to close by telling you the story of Zacchaeus, and I just want you to understand, you can read it yourself in the 19th chapter of Luke, the first 10 verses. We know quite a bit about this man. He was a tax collector. Probably on a typical day, he would wear a business suit and tie to work. He was either an attorney or a CPA, probably. And uh, he was also a short man. So he was a rich guy, he's a tax collector and a short man, but the Holy Spirit began working with him. And so he decided he wanted to see Jesus. So he went to the main street of Jericho where he lived, and he decided he would get up there. But when he got there, there were so many people he couldn't get up. So you can imagine he probably said, please give way, I'm a short man. But they said, no, 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 you should have thought about that yesterday. We, we've got our places here. So the Bible said he ran ahead and climbed a tree. Now, it's a fascinating thing that after that experience, Jesus looked up in the tree and called him by name, though they had never met. Now, this is a fascinating story because in this situation, you see something really incredible happening. Jesus had this encounter with Zacchaeus because he invited himself home for lunch, as you remember. And after the lunch, Zacchaeus stood up and said, if I have not returned anything that I've taken fraudulently from people, I'm going to restore it fourfold, and uh, half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, what I want you to understand from this is that one encounter with Jesus changed his attitude toward money and possessions and put, his, put him on the road toward eternity. Would you like Jesus to say that at your place? Now, this is really be incredible because Jesus stood up after his testimony and said to him, today salvation has come to your house. I would like Jesus to say that at my house and about my life as well. It's a wonderful thing to understand. These stories are illustrations because they're people just like us, and we understand how God has blessed them, those who have been faithful, and what we can look forward to as well. 
We'll look forward to the third session as we get together again on the biblical principles of money management. And may God bless you as you serve him in this area of your life. been listening to It's Your Money with Christian attorney and financial counselor G. Edward Reed. If you'd like to learn more about developing financial strategies from a Christian perspective, call 1-800-328-0525 and ask for the companion It's Your Money book and workbook written by Mr. Reed. You can also order individual It's Your Money CDs by name or topic. Call 1-800-328-0525 or visit online at www.adventsource.org.